Father, we continue to bless you for your love and for your mercy, for the battles that you fight in our lives and for the gift and blessing of your holy word. So we want to thank you, Lord, that today you've given us yet another opportunity to learn from your holy word, Lord, especially as we get the right perspective of interpretation of scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you take center stage and direct us and give us the willingness to continue learning and to adjust about things that we could have learned from childhood at the wrong way. We bless you, King of Glory. Empower us. Your word is your truth, and your truth is the power that we need to steer us forward and to lead us in this tumultuous world. We bless you even as we learn about the right way to interpret scripture and about scripture that has been used the wrong way. As we receive the right frame of mind about scripture, Lord, implant us within us to implant us, to implant it among the lives of others. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. A blessed and wonderful morning, my friend. And uh, my name um, continues to be David Kagwa. We are nearly winding up these teachings on uh, fasting for God and the truth of his word. And recently we're basically looking at um, uh, the wrong ways of interpreting scripture. And therefore, um, those wrong ways had to be avoided. That is what we are looking at uh, recently. Now, today, what I want to do today and tomorrow, we are going to be looking at uh, about the 20, uh, today, tomorrow, and the other day, um, the, the 20 most misquoted or misinterpreted scriptures. I'm going to be pointing out the 20 most misquoted or misinterpreted scriptures, and the intention is to give them the right perspective or put them in their right context, such that at the next time you're using them, uh, we shall use them in the right way. And uh, if you hear someone use them the wrong way, uh, the goal um, of, of, of your information to them shall be, uh, you know, guiding them the right way to use them. But ideally, like Paul teaches uh, Timothy, um, our goal is uh, uh, faith um, with love and a sincere spirit. You don't do it in a way that puts them down, but you do it uh, with love because most people who use these scriptures wrongly do not actually intend to, or they don't, um, uh, you know, take the, the burden of getting to find out because this is what they've been told by we pastors. This is what, and this is how we use them, most of us. So how do you blame someone if you don't tell them the right way? And if you're telling them the right way, then you ought to do it well. So friends, that, that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm looking at the first five scriptures that are most misquoted or misinterpreted. Uh, we've done this. For those of you that are just joining us, we've done these teachings before, and um, um, the teachings are available on an on online uh, podcast called Mission Ezra 710, and you're going to be finding the, the foundations of proper uh, scripture interpretation, the steps, and everything in there. It's not an academic sermon, as you may presume. People fear academics, but ideally there are principles that we cannot do without in as far as the interpretation of the word of God is concerned. you find them there. Um, these teachings are building on um, those previous teachings. Now, today I'm doing the first five. And the first one on the list is Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53.5. I'll read it. Um, it says... It says that, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, 
when most people are quoting this verse, they don't quote the whole verse like I've just read it. What they actually do is they're going to go and they will simply find the last bit of this verse and say, by your stripes we are healed. Now this is often used by we pastors and it is also used by by intercessors and prayer warriors, especially when praying for people that are sick, when doing deliverance. <laughs> this is when uh, this verse is commonly used. You hear that? What most people mean with this verse in our generation is, God, since we are, you know, beaten on the cross, therefore we are healed. Our sicknesses are healed. Our cancer is healed. You know, our COVID is healed. That is how people use that verse. But this is not what the writer intended, and therefore it is not what God intended. And we've said before that the Bible is not meant to be interpreted in our 21st century mind or perspective, not at all. There are principles that we've already looked at that have gotten to be followed in, when we are using scripture. And every time you misuse it, you're actually misquoting God. It is like using the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, you know, he doesn't like it and it will never have the power that it should have had on your life. Ideally, that is what that means. Let me reread this verse and then I'll do the entire context of this scripture so we can understand the right perspective of using um, this scripture. Let me read the verse. Verse 5 says of Isaiah 53, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You hear that? Um, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now the question is, who is he? <laughs> who is he? Who is the one that was pierced? Uh, it is simple. We say that the principle is never read a single scripture or never read a single verse and run away with it. Look at the preceding verses. Look at the verses that are coming after. Then look at the entire chapter. Then find the perspective of the chapter in the book and look at the theme of the book and then connect it with the entire biblical perspective and you're good to go. Now, when we look at uh, um, this verse, one verse that comes before it is verse 4. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. The verse that comes after it, verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you simply read that verse, then you know who is it that took the iniquity of, of his particularly believers or of the world. You, you're going to know that we are talking of Jesus Christ here. And when you look at the perspective of um, Isaiah 53, we call him the suffering servant. Isaiah presents Christ as the suffering servant. And when you look at the entire um, build-up of Isaiah, we know that Isaiah is basically divided into um, two major divisions. Of course, there could be a third one that speaks of the historical interlude there, but there are two major divisions. Isaiah 1 to 39 is a division, and Isaiah 40 to the end is a division of the book. Now, uh, we Bible students have gone ahead to liken Isaiah to uh, nearly the entire Bible, that it is a, a Bible or, or of some sort in way of a, a picture. And when you look at the Bible, uh, it is divided into two 
Testament, the first Testament is 39 books, just like Isaiah, and the New Testament is um, 26 books, uh, 20, uh, just like 27 books, just like uh, Isaiah is giving us these chapters here. And the first one is the Old Law, or is the Old Testament, and the new one is uh, the New Testament, which speaks more of grace. Now, um, chapter 53 falls more in uh, the chapter that speaks of the restoration of Israel and the grace that God would bestow upon it through the death of the Messiah or the Savior. And this is what Isaiah is talking about here. So Isaiah is saying that by the stripes of Jesus on the cross, then our inner man, our soul, our sinfulness is going to be healed by faith. That is what it means. It doesn't mean that by your stripes we are healed of our physical illnesses, even when Jesus elsewhere can heal, because that is what someone can easily tell you. Yeah, that doesn't God therefore heal physically? Yes, he does, but that is not what he's talking about here. That is not what he's talking about. You, you understand that, my friend? So this scripture is used wrongly and God is not happy about it, but we have an opportunity to set it right. By his stripes, we are healed in the spirit. We are healed of our sinfulness. That is what it means. In other words, it is an ev evangelical verse, you know? And if you're praying through it, you should be praying for people for spiritual healing. In other words, for people to come to Christ um, or to the Lord through Christ in salvation. So... Uh, prayer warriors, intercessors, pastors, uh, let us stop using that scripture the wrong way. The next scripture that I want to look at that is wrongly used is Matthew 11, 20, Matthew um, 18, 20. <laughs> this one also is often used wrongly, and this one commonly, commonly, Matthew 18, 20. And uh, you're going to agree with me when you get the right context of this scripture. Uh, I told you that when we are interpreting scripture, one of the most important words is called context. What is the context into which uh, the passage of the scripture is being used? But let us look at Matthew 18, 20 here and see what it says. Quickly, it says that uh, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. <laughs> <laughs> now, like you hear it, most people, most of us use this scripture to mean that when two or three people have gathered, then God is going to be there. Oftentimes, this is what we mean. But isn't this blasphemous? In other words, if you're one person, then God cannot be there. Are you seeing that? <laughs> if I'm in my bedroom, God can't be there. If I'm driving in the car and I'm praying, God can't be there. That is basically what we mean. Isn't that blasphemous upon the Lord? You, you, you understand that? This is oftentimes how we use this scripture. Now, if you go back and look at the entire um, context of uh, this uh, passage, you're going to discover that actually God is not talking about uh, people being together, not at all. Uh, he's not talking about him coming to people because they have gathered. If you go back, the context is church discipline dealing with disagreements and seeing one against the other in the church perspective. You see, Matthew writes by way of what we call discourses. He presents Jesus as the Messiah, particularly to the Jews, as the promised Messiah. And uh, he does this by way of um, um, 
um, five, we call them discourses, or you can call them teachings, five teachings. The first is the Sermon of the Mountain, uh, Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. The second is what we call the Mission Discourse um, of Matthew 10. The third is the Parabolic Discourse or the teaching or about the parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13. The fourth is this one where we are of Matthew 18, uh, what we sometimes call uh, the character of the believer or the childlikeness of the believer. And the last is one that comes in Matthew 24, which speaks of the, um, which we oftentimes call the Olivet Discourse. Now what Matthew does is after he has presented a discourse or a teaching, he follows it up with a narrative. In other words, an explanation or evidence of the teaching to bring it out or give it life. Now here, basically, uh, Matthew is talking of the childlikeness of the believer. You see that? Uh, childlikeness of the believer. And therefore he says a believer is meant to be as pure as a child is because he starts it off by answering the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he says, we believers must be like children. And then he goes right ahead and he speaks of things that bring stumbling, and from there, he, he speaks of wandering sheep. And then the section where the thing is, is a section that moves from Matthew 18, 15 to Matthew 20, where we are. He's talking of dealing with a sin in the church. You see, uh, dealing with sin in the church. In other words, he says, you must be as innocent as a child. You see, because we are talking of the childlikeness of a believer as a discourse. You see that? He, he, that is what he's saying. And therefore he says, if there are disagreements between you and your brother or sister, talk to them. If it doesn't work, get to witnesses. If it doesn't work, then take them to the church. If it doesn't work, then take them out of the church and let them be to you as a Gentile or an unbeliever. What that means is they, you have an opportunity to go and search them out and look out for them and bring them back into the main course of the church. That is what he means. And then finally, that is when he comes to verse 20. But let me take it from uh, verse 19. He says, again, truly I tell you that if two, or, uh, if two of you uh, on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When you look at the entire context of that scripture, going by what we've said and interpreted, interpreted it to be, you can see that he's not talking about him coming and sitting in the midst of the people because they have gathered. He's talking about unity, and therefore if they are united, if they are one, going um, by the innocence of a, a child as the main focus here, then I'll be with you. And when we say that the, 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 that the, the principle is not just looking at one verse, look at the rest of the verses, look at the book and look at the entire biblical framework. We said this is consistent with the rest of scripture. If you look at, for example, John 13, um, uh, John 13, um, 35, 36, the Lord says, um, by, by these people shall know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And, and, and you see, later he says, be one as I and my father are, I am one. So you see that it is, it, it, it is connected with the rest of the biblical framework. But if you say that the scripture means that if two or three are gathered, then God is going to come. Where else is this said in scripture? Where, where else is it said that if 
people not three god will not come so that cannot be true and let us stop using it in that way that is a wrong interpretation of scripture the third scripture that i want to uh, talk about that has been put out of context or oftentimes is misquoted is a uh, philippians and uh, chapter 4 and verse um 13 what does this say it says until we all um um it says Okay, um, yes, uh, Philippians 4.13, I'd open Ephesians, uh, Philippians 4.13, um, what does this say? Let me get there and read it uh, verbatim. Um, it says that, um, um, yes, he says uh, here that um, I'm finding it, I'm finding it, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And how do people use this um, scripture or verse? They often say, therefore, I can, I can do everything uh, because God is in me. I can do everything. I have, <laughs> I have the strength to do everything because God is with me. I can overcome challenges. I can fight my enemies. I can pray. I can, you see, that kind of thing. That is how we use it. But when you look at the proper context of this scripture, it doesn't say that. Um, if we go back up there, Paul is actually giving thanks for the um, um, for uh, the, the the Philippian gift that was sent unto him. You see, but he also seems to say that I've been there in uh, um, I've been there in lack and I've been there with plenty. I I know what it takes to be in all situations, not on my own, but God has taught me how to survive in all situations, and therefore. I can, it is more of, I can survive in all situations because of the Lord who empowers me. That's what he says there. Let me read it from verse 10. Philippians 4.10 says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. You hear that? For I have learned to be content whatever the situ the circumstances that is what it means i know what it is to be in need and i know what it is to have plenty i have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation uh, whether well fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want i can do all things uh, i can do all this through him who gives me strength what does he mean therefore he says i can therefore endure uh, um, uh, having nothing, uh, you see, because I've also seen what it means to have plenty. Why? Because God has enabled me to be that way. It is a scripture about enduring hard times uh, 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 and, you know, whether you have or, uh, or you don't. It's not a scripture about you having strength to do everything like most of us use it and quote it. So we need to change the way we use that one also. My fourth scripture is in Matthew 11, uh, 28. This is another one. Uh, this is another one. Matthew 11, 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Now, how do we use this scripture in our day? We pastors use it as an evangelical uh, scripture, uh, which would be right if we used it the right way. But we tell people, come if you're tired. 
come. I'll pray for you. You, if you, you're burdened with problems, with debts, with conflict, with uh, with lack, and I'll pray for you, and this burden will go. That is how we pastors use this, and this is what uh, most people use this scripture for. Most of the times, as believers, you have a burden. Come to the Lord; is going to give you rest. But that is not what that passage says. Uh, you see. We say that uh, Matthew basically teaches by way of discourses. And when we look at uh, Matthew 11, the most recent discourse is what? Is the discourse of, of uh, is what we call the mission discourse of Matthew chapter 10. Now, Matthew um, 11 is a narrative. It is a narrative. It is an explanation of Matthew 10. It basically follows up on the mission discourse. You see that? It follows up on the mission discourse or on the teaching of mission of the 10. Basically, the next discourse is going to come in Matthew 13. Uh, you understand that? About the parabolic uh, discourse or the parables of the kingdom. That is how he teaches. So he cannot explain anything different from what he has told. Uh, that is not how we teach. <laughs> we teach us. You explain what you have already taught. You explain a principle that you've already laid before. But... What people use this scripture for is, um, if you have a problem, come to God, is going to give you rest. And yet this is uh, an explanation of the mission discourse. In other words, it can't be different from, from what he has already unveiled. Now let us do it in detail here for us to understand it. Let me read it from verse 25. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty-five says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things, from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And you see the language he's using. In the first verse, he's speaking about a revelation of Christ unto the people that he has been hidden from others. You see? And uh, he's revealed unto those that have an attitude of children. They have an attitude of faith. Y you see that? This is what he's saying. He's talking uh, before that um, of wars to unrepentant towns. You know, the towns that were unrepentant, that were not coming to Christ. Verse um, 27, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you can properly see that this is a passage about knowing and accepting Jesus. As simple as that. It's not a passage about carrying burdens and taking them to, <laughs> to Jesus. So, in other words, when he says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He means, come to me, all of you who are tired of looking for a way to come to me by your own means, like the Pharisees, like people striving. Like you hear people, they tell you what uh, you're looking for. God has already done it on the cross through Christ. You simply accept him and submit your life unto him, uh, accept him and take him. And then they say, no, people are telling you, you have to be good. You have to do this, do the other for God to accept you. We are saying you're essentially evil and corrupted. That is what we are. So you cannot make your way to the Father if you already corrupted, there is no way you're going to be able to do that. So he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, eh? who are tired. You've been looking for a way to come to God and you're tired about this. But now the way is here. Just come to me and I'm going to give you rest. I'm the way, the truth and the life. 
just come. That is what he means. It is a burden about, it is a passage about people that are burdened and are tired of looking for God on their own. Please come. Uh, you, you see, it's, it's, it's a verse about accepting Christ in faith. It is a verse about um, giving up personal effort in seeking God. It's not a, a verse about come and I'll take your burdens away, burdens of uh, luggages of, and burdens of, of debt, uh, of conflict. You were left in the house. Please come. Today you come. That is, that is how we pastors use that, and that is how people use this verse commonly. <laughs> but that is a wrong, wrong thing to do. Lastly, for today, is John 15, uh, 7. A verse that talks about prayer and the way people use this is awful um, oftentimes. You see, it is, it, it, this is um, not how it is meant to be used. Uh, John 15, uh, 7. What does it say? It says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, how do people use this verse in our generation? They, they say, whatever you, you ask, as long as you want anything, God said, just ask and I'll give you. Father, you said, we simply ask and you give us. Now give us the nations. Now give me a second wife. Now give me. <laughs> you see how people misinterpret scripture? But first of all, we said, never pull out a verse out of a, a, a chapter, never pull it out of this context. It is dangerous. It is wrong. This is how heresies begin. This is how cults begin. This is how people can lose focus and uh, lose their way. First of all, what is John talking about here? We know that generally John speaks of knowing and accepting Christ as the son uh, of God, you see? And that giving you eternal life. His theme is in John 20, 30. We also know that he has divisions in his book. Uh, unlike Matthew, who uses discourses, John teaches around these seven signs, basically. Uh, you know, uh, basically, that is what he does. And he presents them as the Son of God. Uh, by accepting him, he gives you eternal life. Now, from John 14, uh, 15, 16, 17, we are basically seeing Christ give his first, um, his last address one is with the disciples in the upper room and uh, two uh, actually uh, in, in in chapter 15 they are en, en route they are walking and they are going to the garden of gethsemane you, you see you get to see the picture go back in the times understand the culture see the picture and then you understand scripture the way it is now he's talking to his disciples and uh, it is a matter of urgency because very soon the same night is going to be arrested and uh, from, um, thereafter, he's not going to talk to them again. They will crucify him, and then um, they, they will see him later after the resurrection. You see? So here he's en route, and he's talking to them, and they are scared. They are scared about what is going to happen, and so he has to talk to them and affirm them. Now, he's talking about himself being the true vine, and them the branches. And he's explaining to them all these things. Let me go back to verse 5. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. It's about fellowship, you know, there in faith and submission. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you, do, if you don't remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, 
and it will be done for you. What the Lord actually means there, he's speaking to his disciples and he actually doesn't mean that whatever you ask, I'm actually going to do it. What that verse means, he says, if you discern my will, first of all, he says um, that uh, um, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, in other words, my words remain in you, my will is in you, what I want is in you, and you're in me, we are in fellowship, eh? we are in, in, in fellowship, eh? you, you understand what he's saying here. <clears throat> then my will is going to be your will. My word is going to be your word. What I want is what you're going to want. Definitely pray for that and I shall do it. Otherwise, what Peter had wanted earlier should have been done. Like Peter didn't want Jesus to die. But right now he's going to be crucified. He did mean that I'm giving you a blank check. Like oftentimes we pastors and other believers use this verse. They tell you God said, ask for anything and you'll get it. Come on, ask for big things. Ask for that car. Ask for the, the, the nations. Ask for another wife. Ask for... <laughs> this is not what we do. Not at all. What it means is if you abide in me like a, a branch cannot abide on its own, cannot bear fruit on its own, except if it is... A, abiding in me if you abide in me then i'll give you life i'll connect with you your mind will be my mind your will will be my will and when you pray you're definitely asking for what i've already revealed to you only then shall i do it there are many people that have gotten frustrated because they claim god you say it in your word you promised unto us and i'm praying through your word you said whatever i ask you're going to give unto me why are things not working and people have ended up losing their faith hating the lord uh, just because they misinterpreted scripture or their pastors or their spiritual leaders misinterpreted it in their direction and therefore they feel frustrated in their walk of faith. Friend, that is what we have today. And I want to encourage you to use scripture the right way. You will not get all these frustrations. I mean, you're going to enjoy your fellowship with the Lord and you'll understand that God is very realistic in the way that he does his things. Very realistic indeed. Maybe one reason you hate God is because you've been using scripture the wrong way. Maybe you've been uh, thinking that he's unfaithful, but yet you misinterpreted his promises as written down in scripture. Today, this is the time to go back to, to him, to understand him in proper perspective, wait on him in the right way, uh, using scripture the right way. Father, I pray that you will uphold us even today and draw us back unto what we are meant to be in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in our lives. I pray that your power and the glory shall be made manifest in our lives. And I want to pray for resilience, even in the lives of your people that have been nearly waning and giving up in one way or the other, and they thought you were being unfaithful. I want to pray that your power and the glory shall come, Lord, and take precedence in our lives. Encourage your people that had gotten discouraged because of using scripture the wrong way. They thought we are not coming through for them, but you are actually meant something else today. I pray that you re-encourage them, re-encourage us. Let us walk once again, arise and pursue you and look at you and wait on you because of who you are. We want to wait on your King of glory because of who you are, your power, your majesty, your glory, and the way that it is meant to be in our lives. I want to pray that this shall come to pass. 
in our lives. I remember my sisters that are frustrated, that are not married yet, and they were reading that scripture the wrong way, that you said we should pray for anything, and it is not coming. Probably they've been standing out of your will. I pray that there shall be realignment um, with your will, O God, and we wait on you in every way. People that are waiting for jobs, that have been saying, burdens, uh, you said we should come with our burdens, and yet the scripture says something else. I pray that we shall do something new today in our lives, and give us the right perspective of understanding scriptures. I remember my fellow pastors that we shall divide the word of truth with all truth, that we shall focus on doing the right thing. We shall take time studying our scriptures. We shall uh, get to sharpen one another, iron sharpening iron, that we are not islands. There are some of us who think we can be islands, and this is why we are interpreting things the wrong way, because we can't get guided. Bless us all together, empower your people. I declare revival and a spiritual renewal in our lives by using scripture in its right perspective. May the Lord bless you, fight your battles, provide for you, and and empower you in Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. God bless you.